Hello. Hello. Hey, Catherine. We had a weekend. Yeah. yeah. You had a weekend? Uh, somewhat, yeah. What did it? What did you do with the weekend? I mean, just kind of talk to people about the virus. <laughs> yeah. But we didn't do a podcast for the first time in 14 days. Yeah, but we're... But we are. Again. We're back at it. So I, I need to know, I, I keep hearing about sort of supply shortages and bed shortages. And, you know, many cities are constructing these emergency yeah. facilities and we're trying to procure more supplies. But are you hearing anything from doctors already about having to ration care or make really uncomfortable decisions yes. about who's getting care? Well, not as, not really uncomfortable decisions yet. Uh, I think the rationing that we're doing is in terms of who we're testing and who is going upstairs versus who is told to ride something out at home and who gets tested and who wears a mask in what situation. So that's the rationing we're at right now. How close are we to sort of the situations that we most fear, which is actually having to take someone off of a ventilator, say, or not give them a ventilator when they might survive if they were on one? I think we're very far from saying this is a this is a young, healthy person who could have very well been saved by a ventilator, and we just simply don't have anyone to administer it to them. Um, and, and I say that because that, that's the sort of, I think, nightmare scenario. We, it'll be, there'll right. be the gray areas where boundaries will be pushed, especially after what we heard happening in Italy where people were denied ICU care. There were simply not enough beds and not enough doctors right. to do anything close to what would be considered the usual expected level of care for people. Right. And um, there's concern about that happening in isolated places in the U.S. right now. And we haven't seen anything that is wartime level disaster zone rationing, but there's concern about how that would be handled if and when we do get there. Even if it's only, you know, for one night in one hospital in New York, scenes like that uh, where young healthy person is denied care and sent home and then they die at home. There will be instances like that. I don't mean to say denied care. I mean, where they decide with their provider, okay, you can probably be at home, okay. You'll probably be safe at home, okay. You know, and then they aren't. Right. So are there frameworks right now? Is there like when, you, when you're in, you know, medical school, do they give you like the handbook of how to make these decisions? A doctor is supposed to make a decision about who needs what level of care, and then an ethics team will set up these guidelines about who can get that care if it becomes very limited. Got it. So it was, so ideally, it is not the doctor's decision. There is a staff that is dedicated to making these decisions based on a framework that has previously been constructed. Previously constructed, but also totally context-dependent. So that's why you have experts who can, on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, help inform how are we distributing care and is it ethically right. appropriate. And this, as the case numbers ramp up, those decisions will become more fraught. Exactly. Yeah. So we need the framework now. Yeah, we need the framework because some of that will decisions that could be viewed as extremely impossible to ever feel good about are at our doorstep. Right. So you've been talking to these experts and you have someone you want to call today? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Art Kaplan is sort of the leading voice in, in bioethics and has always been a clear voice of reason for me in trying to understand this stuff. Hello? Hey, it's Art. How are you? Oh, good. How are you? This is Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi, James. Uh, Thank you so much for talking with us on short notice. No problem. So can uh, can I start by asking you to introduce yourself? Sure. 
So I'm Art Kaplan. I'm the head of the Division of Medical Ethics at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine. And how are you? I'm okay, although uh, I have my own uh, stresses, certainly getting a little uh, cabin fever. But my spouse is the CEO of the Bronx VA Hospital. So I have a certain uh, pretty scary view of New York hospital situations that comes home every night. Can you give us just a just a sense of what's going on? I mean, they we keep hearing, you know, that things are getting really bad, but it's it's hard to imagine what it's like inside with any level of specificity if you're not there. So I'll tell you a few things, just impressions. One is that the equipment shortages and protective gear shortages are definitely uneven between hospitals. Some do have equipment, some don't. Some are getting a surge in patients. Um, I think people are worrying about what to do when critical folks turn up positive, say your head of the ICU or someone who's uh, responsible even for uh, managing equipment and stuff like that. Right. There are people certainly trying to manage people who don't want to come to work, somebody who's pregnant and just afraid. Right. And how do you get them to come and what do you say? There are certainly some hospitals where the chief management have gone to Florida. (laughs) People are sort of looking around at each other saying, I'm at work and where are they? Yeah. So it can be pretty, uh, pretty hectic, pretty uh, difficult. And I think one fallout from this experience will be that no one will ever get on a conference call again. I think they've been on conference calls seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Well, we're all laughing that everyone will start using much more telemedicine and video stuff. Well, I don't think those people are going to want to talk to each other for about a year. <laughs> yeah. that That's an interesting take on this, that people will actually be really sick of talking to each other after this. Yeah. Um, well, can, can you just to back up a little bit, have you had experience with this kind of pandemic situation before? Yes. So it's kind of interesting. I'll tell you what's different about the situation we're in now. We have had rationing decisions. I've been working for decades on the system we use to distribute scarce organs for transplants. So every day, many people die who don't get a transplant because we really don't have enough. Here's what's different. First, many of the people, doctors and nurses, social workers, techs, they've never faced rationing. Even transplants, they have not impacted most healthcare workers. So they've never faced the possibility that they could be involved in rationing. So that's Mm -hmm. different. And that ups the ante and makes the tension and the emotion and the fear much greater within the hospitals. Right. The other difference is most people never worried about getting rationed because they didn't need an organ and they weren't sitting near an Ebola outbreak or they weren't going to use a emergency medicine, you tell a rich person or well-insured person, you could face rationing. They've never faced that. So they get nervous about it. If you will, the pandemic has raised the scope of where rationing has to be considered to include everybody. I mean, even worldwide. What do you think the hardest ethical questions we have right now are? I don't know. How long is this podcast? (laughs) I have... (laughs) I have some ideas about that. Um, There's some advocacy over the weekend about making sure that in in all this, as we start to think about rationing decisions in the U.S. that we haven't faced um, in quite a long time, that 
there not be dis- un, uh, a discrimination against elderly people, against p- chronically ill people. Mm-hmm. And there is that tension right there, which you mentioned is something similar we always we think about with organ donation is you have to think about the utility of how many quality life years does that person have if they receive an organ and there's so there Mm -hmm. is some discrimination against elderly and chronically ill people built into many rationing decisions um how do you how do you navigate that in a way that if say it comes to ventilators um, mm-hmm. is as non-discriminatory as possible while making de- decisions that are, by definition, discriminating about who gets what. So when I look at policies, including my own institution, the first thing we have to commit to is that we won't discriminate. So I'm looking for a statement that says everyone will be considered. And by the way, that includes the elderly chronically ill, the disabled. It also would include no discrimination by gender or race or culture. So we're trying to lead with the principle, and this is what I would call fairness, that everybody has a shot. Everybody has an opportunity. And that's somewhat true uh, in transplant. um, And it's somewhat true with emergency medicine rationing. And I've learned that, that you begin by saying, in order to get support for rationing, you have to make people know that the squeaky wheels won't have an advantage, the rich won't shove aside the poor, the disabled just won't be killed. Um, We're not gonna have hard and fast age boundaries. So that said, you then move on to justice. And your question, James, is, okay, well, what about biological and physiological differences? And the answer to that is, that's the first consideration. Try to maximize the chance of saving a life. I do think that The moral principle that has emerged from many discussions, a lot of things I've written is, first, uh, you try to save the most lives. That does put people who have underlying chronic illnesses involving their respiratory system, chronic obstructive lung disease, damage from vaping, people are smoking, that could put you down lower than somebody else. I wouldn't start with an age cutoff because we've seen healthy 70-year-olds and very, very sick, compromised Mm 20-year-olds. But it would be fair to say if you can't sort them out by biology and physiology, then you go to age because age is somewhat of a predictor who's going to do well. Young people just do better than older people. So you don't want um, wealthy and powerful people to have unfair access Uh, At the same time, there are questions of a person's utility in a specific scenario, like if you are the head of emergency medicine or ICU care at a hospital and your health ends up subsequently meaning that many more people could be kept healthy, do people in positions like that get priorities over people who are of less... I don't even know how to how to use these words appropriately without less, being offensive. Less significance to trying to uh, save more lives, right? Yeah, I don't know right. Where you're going. Yeah. So the answer is yes, but I think you apply the physiology test first. So a very very sick dying head of an ICU is not probably going to do well on a uh, ventilator, and they're going to get excluded. Where I believe we should take into account healthcare worker status is a tiebreaker. So after you get by physiology, after you get by age as a predictor, 
then you probably are going to say we've got to get people back to work if we can. And they will save more lives that way and we'll be prepared for the next wave of uh, this virus if it bounces back, which it could. So, so what are the factors, if we can summarize them, that are going into these decisions? It's sort of the person's likelihood of surviving meaningful uh, for a meaningful amount of time. Yeah. And then the person's, uh, then next, what is the next factor that's being considered? So you're probably putting kids first, and then you're probably putting younger people over much older people just because age is a predictor of resilience and just it's true for any treatment we can think of just about right. they'll do better than uh, the elderly. Then mm-hmm. you move to tiebreakers like, are you a healthcare worker broadly defined? You might uh, look at a, a tiebreaker like, is there a place we can send you back to? Um, some people are going to be worried about if you're psychotic or mentally ill how could we manage you even if we tried to put you on a uh, ventilator? Would you disrupt the unit, imperil other people? Do you need more resources, that kind of thing? So you'd be watching that too. Yeah, It's it's hard for me to think through this because we say the, this is very uncomfortable. Well, it runs um, up against some of the advocacy, right? That everyone's right. saying we can't, we need, you know, age not to be a point of discrimination mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Mental illness shouldn't be a right. point of discrimination right. or a disability and in any way. Yeah. So, well, remember, so. look, look, here's the way to think about that. On the one hand, I said when I started, everybody gets considered. And that's the non-discrimination at the front end. Who's coming into the funnel toward resources? That's what we do with transplant. That's the right thing to do. But it does not mean that age should be ruled out as a distribution factor, if you're 94 and you have four underlying chronic illnesses and you just had two heart attacks, you are not the best candidate. If you're 70 and you're in pretty good shape and there's a 30-year-old who's blown his lungs out from vaping and smoking, well, maybe the seven-year-old will go ahead. That's physiology. So we have to be careful here. We don't want to rule out people just because they're disabled. Put it another way. There's no blanket discrimination against age or disability. That's wrong. But when they are relevant to outcome, then I think they count. I Northwestern proposed this um, rule, uh, proposed, just said that they're considering it, something where they would make every COVID-19 patient DNR. Yes. Um, so so let, me, let me explain that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, please, please. Um, So one way to get resources is to triage at the front end. The other way is to stop treating some at the back end to free up a bed, personnel, ventilators. I think we will have decisions to make about stopping because not everybody's going to recover. Does that mean automatic do not resuscitate? Probably not because you can make the judgment, but it does mean there's going to be quicker do not resuscitate than you might have when resources were generous, meaning I might take a chance and keep somebody going uh, longer than seven days uh, if I had empty beds and personnel around and I wasn't afraid afraid of exhaustion or infection of my staff. But in a crunch, I'm probably going to make that call sooner. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And, And the other problem is this. Let's say you have a heart attack in the COVID ward. The crash team would have to get their gear on, protect themselves, and get there in time to try and resuscitate you. And the reality is that won't happen. It'll take them 20 to 30 minutes to gear up 
So in reality, it's not just DNR. It's can anybody get in there as a resuscitation team unless you're really busy and you keep people sort of in their gear, more or less, ready to go. Um, and that's devoting a lot of resources to a remote possibility. That's the other limit on uh, what's happening in terms of resuscitating people. It's not just like you run in there like we see on TV with the pads and yeah. the team and they're not wearing anything. Right. So at a place like NYU, you have a multidisciplinary ethics team that helps to make guidelines. Doctors have the uh, ethical obligation and the legal obligation to do certain things. And mm -hmm. this would be a really abnormal thing to have someone someone code in a COVID ward and, and simply to, you know, yeah. not respond yeah. despite their advanced directive requesting that and despite in in normal situations they would be resuscitatable and in this one they're not so how does that line get drawn does is there someone from an ethics team that says no don't go Do, does the attending have to say that or how's that decision made yeah well at nyu and other places that's what the policies say that is we're trying to go into not just who's coming in the door and triaging but what would we do if we can't resuscitate, do I care what your living will says in a pandemic? I probably don't. Uh, I probably won't even read it. I probably even know where it is. And remember, many people are isolated in these units. Their loved ones may or may not be around to communicate uh, something. It's not uh, business as usual. So, James, the answer is that's what the policies are for. You're trying to give people assurance that these are not normal times. And if they follow these rules, the trustees, the leadership will be behind them. Mm -hmm. And then you're probably trying to resuscitate your hospital attorney who's having a coronary over the fact that, you know, we're throwing all the standard of care stuff yeah. out the window in a pandemic. Right. I have two questions for you just from a, you know, non-medical person. Listening to this, it's very um, difficult to think about. and. Uh, I know that medical professionals are more used to thinking about life and death scenarios, but I can imagine for a lot of people listening, this is disturbing to think about. And I'm wondering if you have any just sort of advice on how to think through this situation, since you've been thinking through these kinds of ethical issues for your whole career. Yeah. Um, now I've been thinking about them. I've been doing them. I've right. sat on the committees and said, you're going to get medicine and you're going to die. So I, I know it's tough. I know it's emotionally wrenching. I know it's miserable. I know you don't want to do it. Um, it wears on you. And uh, it should. I mean, part of my answer is we should be feeling terrible and miserable when we have to do this. I've said for 35 years, I wish people would give more organs so that I didn't have to be in a committee to try and decide who was going to get a transplant. Um, right. I'd really rather not do that. And I'd rather avoid rationing by trying to stretch our resources. I like it when the hospital ship pulls into New York Harbor. And I like turning the Javits Center here, the con convention center in the city into, uh, you know, field hospitals. And I like when hospitals figure out how to share um, between, say, the VA system and the city system. Those are ways to avoid rationing. And I'm all for that first. But you do need counseling and you do need emotional support. And Catherine, I'd say we have to pay attention to that too for our own healthcare workers. There are plenty right. of nurses and social workers and doctors who don't do this normally. They don't 
normally say no and right. we're pulling the vent off of you and you your loved one had to die and they don't know how to even approach the family right. to say this is what we did. So hopefully as we roll this out, I know everyone wants to fall, get into the rules discussion and I do too, but the reality is we've got to figure out, is there enough palliative care? We're not going to let people suffer, I hope, if we don't uh, have enough resources to save everyone or try to save them. We don't actually succeed all the time. And are the chaplains and the social workers and the psychologists going to be around to provide support to people too? That's got to be worked into these policies. Right. What, what, you know, the, the other thing I'll just ask you as an ethicist is it seems like outside of the hospital context, every person um, in the country, at least, but, but all over the world as this spreads, is being asked to make kind of these ethical trade-offs on a daily basis between mm. their comfort or needs and others. And every small decision you make, even the daily decisions about like, how do I get food or can I take a walk? You know, all of these things become ethical decisions. Yeah. And I'm curious if you have a suggestion on just what framework are we supposed to apply? I think our job is to protect one another, protect our families, not bring infection into our homes not bring it to people we live with, not bring it to our neighbors. The principle is, yes, protect the community, but it's also protect yourself and protect those that you're isolating with. We should not be having, you know, sleepovers. It's not the time, as one of my faculty said, her parents were going to go antiquing in Maryland. <laughs> I was like, going to go antiquing? What this are you is not the about? time for antiquing. Not the time for antiquing. I don't even think there's anything open uh, to go antiquing, but you know, you hear people say, well, I gotta break the isolation. I'm going nuts here. Many people live in small spaces. I get all that. Go for a run, stay away from other people, take a walk. Somebody told me, look, uh, in World War II, there was a big fight, Battle of the Bulge at Bastogne, and the American troops were surrounded. They had very little food. It was freezing winter. They had to wait 60 days for somebody to show up to relieve them. So it ain't Bastogne. It's just that you have to watch a lot of reruns on TV right. and decide whether or not you're really going to uh, take the dog for a 59th walk of the day. This is very doable. Yeah, it sounds like we've been we on got the right. This. <laughs> I've been I've been advising you accurately, right, Catherine? And we're on the right track so far. I think we're on the right track okay, so far. But yeah, there's going to be some difficult decisions ahead too. So. Yeah. Did you have? Yeah, I, I mean, look, we're what are we? Two weeks and a half into. Uh, quarantining or isolating around the northeast in Seattle. Yeah. It's still a ways to go. Uh, I would guess we're not going to be out till the middle of May. And even then, not all of us are coming out. You know, maybe people who are a little healthier, a little uh, less at risk, or maybe people who are tested positive but been through it. You know, they may start to wander around a bit. Um, Yeah. So it is, I don't mean to make light of it. It's, it's, it's tough. It's hard. and, and I think uh, I've never been so grateful for the internet, right? I mean, imagine going through this pre-internet days. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Well, Thank you for your advice. Uh, you know, we, we really are all looking for guidance right now, and this is helpful. Yeah. Thank you for talking to us. Yeah. Sure. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Talk to you later. You're not going to find a more charismatic bioethicist, I tell you what. <laughs> um, 
So I think that I'm trying to identify the discomfort I'm having. And I think part of it is just we haven't had to confront these issues in the U.S. in my lifetime on a wide scale. And I think the reaction I keep having is that I want it not to be happening. Like I want there to be some way out of it, sort of. The reality is some people are going to die and we don't have enough for everyone. Right. And decisions have to be made. And I think that reality is just so uncomfortable to take in. Yeah. And and I think that the fact that it's hard to take in is, of course, a, a result of us in the U.S. where we have so much, um, not having had to think about this on such a large scale before. Right. Well, so if you thought about it like a natural disaster or an attack like 9-11, right, um, you know, it's just happening on a, a slower time scale that gives you the illusion that, that one option is that simply, you know, have very few people die and have no real consequences economically either. And right. we, it's hard to accept that there, that's not an option. Um, but we go through these sorts of things, like you're still in the bartering phase, right? Um, or whatever that is. Not denial. You've accepted it, but now you're... In the negotiation. Negotiation. So, phase, yeah, like phase, it's the sort yeah. of thing of, you, you know, when you're in a serious relationship and someone breaks up with you, right? And initially you're just like, no, well, can't we just go back to before that? Right. And right. you right. can't. Um, it will not, You can't just make it go away. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a hopefully not... T- <laughs> like too trivializing distinction but just to put it in terms of like something that no no i have been thinking to. about i have been thinking about the stages of grief a lot actually yeah i definitely had a period of denial i'm still working through anger but yeah i do think i'm entering the bargaining phase where i'm like no well certainly there's a way around this yeah like surely yeah. if we talk to enough experts and consult history and think about this hard enough this just won't be right i'm still working toward acceptance I'm troubled by the fact that depression comes between bargaining and acceptance. So get ready. Uh-oh. Okay. More uncomfortable conversations to come. We have helped today producing this episode by Alvin Mellis and Anna Waters. You can email us at socialdistance@theatlantic.com. If you want to support The Atlantic, the best way to do that is with a subscription. You can do that at theatlantic.com slash support us. Talk to you soon. Yeah, we'll talk tomorrow. Bye. Bye.